0: Jewish views on terrorist attacks in Brussels. We hear from the Jewish community representative there. Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg talks about the volunteer chefs at Calais. Rabbi Hanoch Teller, award-winning author, lecturer and storyteller, talks to Kate Fulton.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A leading rabbi has called on Europe to face and fight the evil on all fronts following the three bomb attacks in Brussels, which killed at least 31 people. Chief Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt, who is president of the Conference of European Rabbis, said everyone was united in prayers with the families of the victims and the injured. And the European Jewish Congress issued a statement saying it can't be ignored that radical Islamists are at war with Europe and that governments and law enforcement agencies must act accordingly. Many of Yemen's last remaining Jews arrived secretly in Israel last week after a covert operation to spirit them out of the war-torn country, which is under a Saudi-led naval and air blockade. Officials from the Jewish Agency said that 19 people left, including a rabbi who brought a Torah scroll that's believed to be 500 years old. It's understood just 50, mostly elderly Jews, are left there now. In 1949, when the first missions to bring them out began, there were 51,000 Yemeni Jews. At Prime Minister's questions, David Cameron urged the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, to sort out anti-Semitism in his party. In response to a question from the Conservative MP Mike Freer, the Prime Minister said that anti-Semitism is an absolute cancer in our societies and that in part of the Labour Party it's growing. A spokesman for Mr Corbyn later said that there have been a small number of people who have made anti-Semitic comments and the Labour Party is cracking down on that. A tourist attraction in the Dutch town of Valkensvaard, south of Amsterdam, has had to apologise for a game called Escape Bunker those taking part have to break out of an apartment which closely resembles that of Anne Frank. The Anne Frank Foundation said it shows very little empathy for survivors of the Holocaust. A spokesman for the attraction said they'd changed the wording associated with the game. And finally, the Israeli-Arab singer Mira Awad performed in the West London Synagogue for 250 people. She sang songs in Arabic, English and Hebrew and made a lot of new
2: fans. That's the news, now the sport. Thanks Viv, I'm Adam Bradley. All eyes this Sunday will be on the top of the table Premier Division clash between Raiders and Redbridge. The Raiders currently lead Redbridge by 5 points, with a game in hand, meaning a win this weekend will move them a step closer to retaining their title. JFS student Daniel Stone finished last week's 10k Jerusalem run in 10th place, though was first in the 13-15 and 16-17 age groups. The main marathon saw 15 Camp Simcha runners raise almost £10,000, while Adrian Jacobs has so far raised more than £8,000 for Kisharon, having taken part in the half marathon. Daniel Summerhin claimed an historic gold medal for Israel at the World Junior Figure Skating Championships in Debrechen, Hungary. The 18-year-old, who performed his winning routine to the theme tune of Sherlock Holmes, said, It's really great. And for Israel, it's amazing. That's it for the sport this week. But remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Well, thank you, Adam. And welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Clive Rosnan,
0: and let's start, as we always do, with a look through the edition of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me is, once again, Justin Cohen, the news editor of Jewish News, and Jack Mandel. Now, let's start, Justin, with your look at, uh, I think you're looking at the Labour Party again and their relationship with the Jewish members.
3: Yes, it seems that there is not a week that goes by at the moment that we're not reporting on yet another controversy around the Labour Party and its relationship with the Jewish community. This week, a third member in the past three weeks was suspended over offensive social media posts. And I think it has to be noted that this action was taken very quickly. We reported on Wednesday morning that uh, these tweets had been found and were being looked into. But actually, the Labour Party, even before it, appeared in the media, had taken action and suspended this guy uh, pending an investigation. He's actually a former Bradford Lord Mayor and serving councillor, Kadim Hussein from Bradford. And this investigation will continue. Uh, I think apart from recognising the fact that the party took swift action here, once again, it's shone a spotlight onto the need for clearer action from the Labour Party. We need more long-term action. It shouldn't just be taken on a case-by-case basis each time these people come up. So, for example, I think the community is now looking for uh, clear guidance that people like this, people who are found to show anti-Semitic sentiment, will be expelled. Uh, also, there's a need to tighten up procedures clearly within the compliance unit, rather than as John McDonnell is suggesting that that compliance unit uh, is got rid of completely. But actually, this wasn't the only story surrounding the relationship this week. We also heard from Lord Levy, uh, who took to Sky News to warn that he could actually resign the whip as a Labour peer unless he heard clearer condemnation and clearer action against anti-Semitism, to which Jeremy Corbyn later replied that uh, he'd actually condemned anti-Semitism on no less than seven occasions since he became leader.
0: Right, that's very interesting, particularly about Lord Levy. And another subject that uh, you've no doubt been discussing is what's been happening in, in Belgium. That's You've been looking at that, have you, Jack?
4: Uh, yes, this week, Brussels, the capital of Belgium, was thrown into terror when two explosions went off at its airport and one at a metro station, and the Belgian Jews said they were in shock. Um, although not directly targeting them, I think they felt the pain of these attacks, as every Belgian does. And much like in London, we we think, you know, when, it's, when is it going to be us? When is, it, when is it our turn for an attack? I think the Jewish community also feel that deep sense of fear that one day it could be them, especially given the proximity of the attack in 2014 against the Jewish Museum in which four people were killed.
0: Now, I also think you're talking about, and this is obvious, I think, when we've just been hearing that bit about what's happening in, in Brussels, you're talking about Donald Trump.
3: Yes, so we had the annual gathering of the APAC conference this week in Washington, a spectacular sight to see 18,000 people packed into that stadium, all looking to further and defend the relationship between Israel and America in particular. And we had various people also attending from the UK community. We heard from the presidential candidates, all of them actually, apart from Bernie Sanders, were, were present and he supplied a video message. But like the rest of the presidential campaign, it was Donald Trump who grabbed the headlines. He spoke in his speech about wanting to transfer the embassy to Jerusalem the day he becomes president. But also he uh, leveled a great deal of fire against Barack Obama, said that uh, he had probably been the worst thing for Israel in the history of the country, to which the APAC leadership were very critical of. And I think quite rightly so. I, I think to use that platform, particularly given the reputation Donald Trump's already built up, the concern that a lot of people had about the invitation in the first place to AIPAC, that they had really no choice but to criticise when he used the platform as he did. I look forward to reading that part of the paper. Thank you very much, Justin. Well, now, Jack, there's another subject
0: that you've been talking about, but it's Sedaka Day.
4: Yes, yeah, Sedaka Day. We've all heard of Mitzvah Day, the day of... Uh... Jewish-led social action. Well, the Muslim community in the UK has mirrored this and they've led a day in which they raise charity and they get food from the public and they donate it to uh, homeless shelters. And this week, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, got involved at JW3. Not only is this day a day of social action for the Muslim community, but it's also a day for interfaith action where Jews and Muslims get together And they break down those barriers and they show that there's more to relations between the community than talking about the Middle East and talking about tensions and conflict.
0: Right. Well, uh, thank you, Justin and Jack. That's all we've got time for for this week's look at the paper. But don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. And we're talking about what was going on in Brussels in the paper. But earlier, I spoke to Philippe Markovich, president of the Jewish community in Brussels. And I started by asking him about the community's reaction to the atrocities that took place on Tuesday.
5: The Jewish community of Belgium is very concerned about the events that happened in our country. And it's normal. And we are very shocked, like everybody. And we are very determined with the other community of the Belgian country, to defend the value of democracy and to fight very, very strongly against terrorism. Terrorism is our common enemy and we have to fight very strongly against terrorism because we wanted that Europe will, st- will always be a democracy.
0: Indeed, but it's, it's becoming more and more and more difficult, isn't it?
5: It's, you know, today the situation changed because in the past, the Jews were quite the only targets from terrorism in Europe. And today, since Charlie Hebdo in France and then the even in November in Paris, the situation changed. So everybody in the country, Jew and non-Jew, understand that terrorism is a danger for everybody. So the Jew are together with the other to fight against terrorism. And that's very important.
0: It's also very important that they must see the difference between the terrorists who belong to the ISIS from Mm. the ordinary good, decent, ordinary Muslim in Brussels. Is there a lot of anti-Islam feeling at the moment?
5: It's a certain anti-Islam feeling. And it's very important that the Jew explain to the other people that you, they cannot condemn all the, the Muslim people because of the negative act of a small minority of the Muslim. And that's the way for me as a Jew and as a president of Belgium Judaism, it's important to have good relation with the people who are managing the Muslim community in Belgium. And we have very good relation with them, very positive relation, and uh, we have to help them to let understand all their people that they have to defend democracy and that they have to fight with us against all form of terrorism
0: now how do you fight it there in what way do you fight it and try and stop this awful sort of thing happening
5: i think one of the element will be the education the education to democracy of the young people it's not an enough big education organization to let understand to the young people that democracy is fundamental, and that's one of the elements. Then we have also to create a European Islam. European Islam will be an integration of the people of the Muslim peoples in the Belgium in the European society. They have to understand these people that religion is private life. In public life, you have to be neutral. Public life is not with religion in 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 Europe. You have to be you. You can keep your religion certainly, but the traditions, the religion, tradition are private life of everybody.
0: Yes. So what you're saying is that you are all Belgians in the country, but when it comes to religion, you privately are Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Hindu certainly, or whatever. Certainly.
5: Certainly, because uh, my, my religion is my private life. I want to keep my tradition for myself and for my family. But it's my private life. It's not my public life. I'm a lawyer. When I'm going at court, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a Jew. Uh, 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 my Judaism is my private life.
0: Now, has, have the recent events made Jews in Belgium frightened more than the, the Christians and the other people?
5: We are frightened like the other, but we are used about, more used about the situation because we were targets in the past a lot of time, so we are more, I should say, more psychological experience about the situation. But we are frightened because we know that everything can happen. With terrorism, uh, 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 you know, nobody is sure for anything. It can happen every moment to everybody.
0: Last year, when there were the, the terrible events in Paris, a lot of French Jews left to go to Israel. a lot of Belgian Jews now saying, let's go to
5: Israel, we'll be safe there? I think that not a lot of Jews leave Belgium to go to Israel. There are people who are leaving Belgium to go to Israel or to go to the United States or to Canada, to Australia, to, to China, uh, because they have business opportunities. But I think... Most of the Jews stay in Belgium, and the people part of the people who are living are living only for a business opportunity of they are studying in, in a foreign country. My own children leave Belgium to, to study the uh, United States or in England. Do you understand?:
0: I understand, yes, yes. Were there any Jews who were caught in this week's disaster?:
5: It seemed to be that one Jew was wounded and we heard that two people of a Jewish family. Uh, who are living in Holland, may be very concerned about the situation, but we have no officially announcement. And for the moment, it's too early to give a public announce. But sure, there are some Jews who were affected by the situation, sure. But you know, a Jew or not a Jew, it's the same. It's a tragedy for everybody.
0: Thank you, Philip Markovich, President of the Jewish Community in Brussels, for talking to us today. And you're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition will be The Jewish Schmooze. I'll be joined for that by author Joe Craig and the voice Jeremy Jacobs and Tony Honigberg. And we'll be discussing terrorism and how concerned should we be. But first, Kate Fulton spoke to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London Masalti Synagogue, about the volunteer chefs at Calais. She began by asking him to say something about his work in Calais and the volunteer chefs.
6: I've been supporting a project in Calais, I've been twice towards the close of last year and then I was in Greece with World Jewish Relief, a different project, but the same concern which is the basic needs of destitute refugees who are fleeing for their lives and need food. Shelter, clothing, warmth and human solidarity.
7: Like us all, what made you go
6: to Calais to start with? I'd, I'd be made aware, first of all, by young people. From Marom in my own community, who'd been there, who had found that uh, there was much that they could do to help. And then I went, first of all, with an interfaith group. And then I went with Jonathan Friedland. In fact, we went together because it is extremely important that people should be aware of and know about the suffering that goes on, the needs that people have, their desire to begin new lives. And I was very moved by what I saw.
7: What did you see?
6: I met with and spoke to people from different countries, from Eritrea. Kurds, people from Darfur. One man came up to me and spoke Hebrew. He'd actually been an asylum seeker in Israel and said he'd felt good there but couldn't find a job, had gone back to the Sudan. They tried to kill him and now come here. People also would make gestures of how some of their family had been murdered.
7: It was people do say, oh, they're being infiltrated and not everybody is a refugee. Did you feel, did you get a sense of that? Or
6: did no, they- absolutely not. It is likely to be true that among hundreds of thousands of people there are some really wicked and exploitative types that is likely to be true but that does not detract from the hundreds of thousands of people who need our help and one of the most impressive things I saw were the kitchens at Calais. I was very moved by what I saw. Chefs including some very well-known names, I'm not in that circuit but people said they were very well-known names, had volunteered to do a week or several weeks or more organizing kitchens in order that the food provided for refugees would be nutritious and beneficial to them. They were organizing, these chefs were also organizing tens of volunteers in how you create a well-functioning, hygienic kitchen in kind of field kitchen conditions, which can provide up to 2,500 meals a day. And uh, they were doing it with humor and with charm. They were delivering meals also to what, when I was there, was a smaller camp and gathering at Dunkirk. It's now a much bigger affair where the need is so urgent that the chefs who are going to cook a meal at my home have actually said, you know, we will keep in touch, but we, we, we just have to, be, we have to feed the hungry. That, that has to come first.
7: So the project that you're working on, tell us a bit about that and, and how and why it shifted.
6: I think it's shifted because the need is so dire. There's been a whole long cold winter there are very many people they, are, they, they need to eat. And so it's, it's as basic as that.
7: The idea was that the lots of chefs would come together to, the, to make the,
6: food. In Calais and Dunkirk, the chefs who've been in charge have been, as far as I know, rotating. So there's always key chefs there and a very, very large number of volunteers. They were also organizing that refugees should be able to receive their food, not so much in queues, but in, in, in community groups in a much more friendly and civilized manner. What I've been anxious to help whatever organizations I can supporting refugees, but this organization, help refugees, and you can find it just helprefugees.org. You can find it online, you can donate online, has been concerned with basic clothing, housing, food, and I actually asked them. To prepare 6,500 weekly meals, which is an absolute minimum, they do more. They actually use over 2,000 kilos of rice, 4,000 tins of tomatoes, 5,000 tins of fish, 7,000 onions, 2,000 2, tins of chickpeas. And all this needs to be brought,
7: Where does it funded. come from?
6: It comes from donations. They've been very successful. Many chains and businesses have helped with food transportation essential equipment but also it's it's us it's our human responsibility when people are you know they're a hundred miles away they're less than a hundred miles away that they shouldn't be hungry
7: and when you're trying to create some kind of sense that they're not in prison i mean like you, you said not to be queuing up for the food to make it more humane and civilized is the food brought to them in their tents is there or is there any way they can create that cook their own
6: food well People do, first of all, it's, it's, it's not prison. The camp in Cali is actually an open camp, but people have certain facilities there, so not, not inclined to leave. Also, there's a certain amount of enterprise, artistic, creative. There was a, a small school for English lessons, a theatre, art, two beautiful churches, which had been made out of plastic and out of tents, a mosque, and some small sort of local enterprise mini restaurants and places where people who had money, if you had money, that's a big if, you could you could buy food, so so it's it, it's a community there, and the food was being given in communities. And how I saw people was with their friends.
7: The pictures that we had seen on the news were were really horrible, swampy, muddy, a f- far cry from a mini setup sort of pop up restaurant that you're describing. So even within that area there seems to be a huge differential between people
6: there is a differential between people there's certainly mud there's certainly low tents you know how you know the second you crawl out you're going to be cold muddy wet There was a big effort to enable as many people as possible to to, to have basic caravans or wooden structures, which are a little bit off the ground so that you weren't so wet. All plastic, nothing much more than that, pinned together. But we're still trying to create places where people could eat and show enterprise. And of course, what people are waiting to do is to find somewhere they can build a secure future for their children, for themselves, for their families.
7: And you said that this initiative, the, the Dinners for the sh- of Chefs, is spreading to Greece. How can the that The Dinners work? for
6: the Chefs is, sorry, the Dinners for the Chefs are a fundraising endeavour that's happening here. But the need is also very present It's across Europe, but in Greece as well. And Help Refugees is also involved there. World Jewish Relief is involved there israel Aid is very very involved there each in slightly different ways with different kinds of talents because so much is needed now in greece people had been transiting if they didn't drown crossing the sea from turkey they were transiting via piraeus up to idomini on the northern border and into macedonia those borders are now closed greece is one of europe's poorest countries which finds itself housing tens of thousands of refugees at an ever-increasing pace. And obviously, the country needs help.
7: There has been rumours, and it's been said, and some of our listeners may have heard, that the refugees won't accept anything that comes from Israel. They're so anti-Israel. It's in their blood. They don't like anything from Jews and won't accept that. Has that been your experience?
6: Absolutely not. I've not seen that. I've gone in Calais or in Greece with my kippah. I've spoken to people who are from Afghanistan, Kurds from different places. It's not my experience. No. And in fact, Israel, I met the, one of the heads of Israel Aid who showed me a picture in, in which a Syrian refugee said, "What well, the person I thought was my worst enemy has become my closest friend. However, there is a concern about attitudes to the Jewish community that that can't it is be a legitimate laughed away. Worry. It can't be marginalized, but it also mustn't be used to undercut the fact that That we do have an obligation to make sure that people aren't starving on our doorstep. The key thing then will be how we involve and integrate people into the the community of Western countries.
0: Kate Fulton is talking to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg and if you'd like to get involved we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. I spoke earlier to Julie Siddiqui, one of the leading interfaith figures in the Muslim community, who works closely with Laura Marks, the creator of Mitzvah Day, in setting up the interfaith women's organisation Nisa Nashim. I began by asking Julie Siddiqui what made her set up Sadaka Day.
8: Okay, I mean, Sadaka Day started last year. And to be honest, it really was inspired by the Jewish Mitzvah Day, uh, which I had seen seems to be getting better and better every year. And it was really modelled on that. So it was something that I had been thinking about in, in one way or another. Muslims are very good at giving money in charity, give millions of pounds every year in charity of various types of in money, but it's actually more about broadening the definition of Sadaka to be more what it is, which is much more about giving your time, giving of yourself in service to others, as well as giving money in charity. And so having it focused on one day in the way that Mitzvah Day also is, seemed ideal really to give people a focus for them to do various different good deeds really on one day.
0: So what day do you do it on? I mean, the Muslim Sabbath is is Friday, isn't it?
8: Yeah, so we, we did it on in March last year and again this year. So it was last Sunday. So we chose a Sunday because that seems the day when certainly our Jewish friends find it easier to do something. And for us... Because we're living in a country which is not necessarily Muslim country, so Friday, although people often go to the mosque on a Friday, but work it's a work day anyway. So for us, it Sunday seemed ideal. People are off work mainly, um, and as I say, our Jewish friends could join in. So it works on a Sunday for us, and this is the second year, um, and it was even better this year than it was last year. So it seems to be going in the right direction. And it was
0: taken up by most of the mosques in, in London and throughout the country.
8: Well, I mean, yeah, actually, interestingly, not necessarily the mosques that have really got the head around it yet, I don't think. it's more. It was much more kind of community groups, small youth groups. We had a really good take-up in Leeds, for example, where they actually got people together from quite a few different groups, so a couple of different youth groups. One of the mosques, um, they partnered up with the synagogue, and they did a lot of activities based from the mosque. But actually, interestingly, the mosques haven't necessarily caught onto it yet. I think the mosques are still under development, shall we say. And unlike synagogues, which seem to have very good organized um, programs and, you know, an office that functions and can manage those kinds of things, the mosques are not necessarily quite there yet. So although some of them are very well organized when it comes to community work, some of them haven't quite got there and are still really basically used for the daily prayers. And that's about it. So it's about actually educating the mosques and other people as well to see that this is something they can do, of course, not just on one day, but all year round. We're having a focus on one day. It tends to encourage people to do something very manageable. But with the idea, I hope, that they realise they can do something all year round. Has it been very successful,
0: though, so far?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think last year I did it very quickly and actually did it kind of last minute And people, you know, got the idea and joined in and and really got into it. And it was brilliant. And this year, building on that and then new people also finding out about it. And we've used social media very well this year. So Twitter and Facebook have been very useful to actually spread the word. So I think we've had a good number of different activities in different areas around the country and lots of different things from feeding the homeless, collecting for food banks, as well as we had a... One of the Muslim girls' schools in Hounslow actually invited their local age-concern group in and they made afternoon tea for them. Um, We had a a group in Manchester that organised a a carer's afternoon for carers that normally don't get time off, came in and had hand massages and um, ate nice food. So those are the kinds of things that people seem to, to have done really well. And litter picking, cleaning up gardens those kind of really simple but very effective things actually have an impact not just on the person receiving the good, but also the person doing it as well, of course, is known that for volunteering, it's very good for all of us. Um, It's good for our soul, as it were. Um, And so I think the feedback, you know, the general feel-good factor has been really very, very good, and people have taken to it in the way that I always hoped that they would.
0: It sounds absolutely fantastic. And how many... How large has it been this time and how much larger do you hope it will be next time?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think a bit like Mitzvah Day, really, starting uh, smaller. So I think this time we probably had about 40 to 50 different activities around the country. And I'm sure that um, with time and if we plan things earlier, now that I know that people definitely love it as much as I do, because you never know with these things, you know, it's all very well to have an idea in your head. Yes. Uh, will people take 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 up take, take it? take to it. Um and of course they have. So I think we've had about 50, 40, maybe 40 or 50 different activities uh, this year. And the brilliant thing is that people are already talking about what they're going to do next year. So I'm absolutely confident that next year we'll build up more like probably a hundred and then it will carry on from there. I'm and sure. then it will just be a case, as I say for me it's also about developing a culture much more than we have at the moment where people want to do volunteering all year round um that again i mean i've been always very impressed with the jewish community organizing scene and how brilliant that is so many charities it's so common for people to do good things and for people to regularly volunteer and i think you know as part of our faith as well we have the same kind of understanding about doing good and helping and serving others so it's absolutely there and it's right up our street as muslims it's just a case of putting the infrastructure in place And I always think volunteering, if you have the kind of angelic people that do all of the organizing and then people can just turn up and do their volunteering and it's made easy for them, it's much more likely that people are going to do it regularly. So I want people to not overdo it. And every time you volunteer, you don't have to do it for hours and hours and days. Actually fit it in with whatever you've got going on in your life. But all of us can take out an extra couple of hours a week, I would say, to do something good for others. And of course, we feel good as well.
0: Well, Julie, thank you very much indeed. It sounds absolutely magnificent, and I wish you every success. Thank you, thank you, so, you so much, much for thank talking you. to us. And now we welcome Rabbi Hanoch Teller, award-winning author, lecturer and storyteller, talking about his work to Kate Fulton.
7: So tell me then, what brings you to London?
9: I came, I had a Scotland residence in Finchley, Kinlas. Uh, there was also in conjunction with the book launch. And today, we're mostly doing a program for a school, a workshop for parents and for children.
7: And the book that you're launching is, uh, is in front of me. It's a very beautiful looking book called Heroic Children, Untold Stories of the Unconquerable. Who are these heroic children?
9: To go back to answer this question, my background in history is basically Holocaust, germane to the Holocaust, related to the Holocaust. I'm a senior docent in Yad Vashem. And the fact of the matter is, after the war, uh, those who went through the Holocaust, those who suffered were very interested. People should know what they went through, what they underwent, how they suffered. But the children didn't tell the story then, and they haven't really told the story ever since. So there's no dearth of Holocaust literature, but what I would call the final frontier of Holocaust literature is the stories of the children. And there's, I felt a mad race to get this done. I mean, I worked on this book for 14 years, but because these people are in the grips of old age, if they're still alive.
7: And you say that there isn't much written about children. How many children are we talking about?
9: Well, the figure is uh, those children that survived the Holocaust is less than 3% of the children. That's a pretty stark figure. We know that over 1.5 million children under the age of 12 perished at the hands of the Nazis. 1.5 million One and children. And
7: 1.5 million children.
9: As a rule, the children had served no purposes for the Nazis. As a rule, Jews served no purposes for the Nazis, which made the Nazis do things which were really not in their own interest. For example, in the Ludge ghetto... That was the greatest garment center in all of Eastern Europe. They produced the uniforms for the Wehrmacht, and yet the destruction of the Jew Iberalis. So they destroyed a ghetto which was only in their interest to keep it going. And there was a dilemma, indeed a uh, conundrum, whereby on the one hand the Jews were a great labor force. The Nazis, like all anti-Semites, believed they anti-Semitism. And they believed there must be so much money among the Jews. So they conquered Poland and they kept waiting to see the loot. And there was no money. The thing which drove Polish Jewry was grinding poverty. The average Polish Jew never tasted Milchix. They yeah. never tasted it. They, The closest they got was a, a glass of water, a few drops of milk to put in to make it cloudy. A girl had one dress week weekday Shabbat. She got taller a hem, taller another hem. And you could almost tell her age, like you count the rings of a tree. So they didn't get any money from Polish Jewry. What they got from Polish Jewry was a skilled labor force, three million strong. So they had this labor force, but they had instructions to destroy Judaism, to destroy the Jews. So what do you do? So they decided to make a combination whereby they had forced labor, which would be destruction while using the Jews.
7: So there was no golden goose that they were looking for. It was just, they were killing the golden goose. They were killing the children who were doing the, who were Well,
9: they imagined initially there would be money because they had believed their anti-Semitism. They believed all kinds of uh, things that were moronic and imbecilic and sounds hilarious. They really believed that the name, the genuine name of the President of the United States was Franklin Delano Rosenfeld. And that was one of Hitler's, Hitler's greatest errors was he believed that he was a Jew and that he didn't take America's strength significantly, and that brought about its downfall.
7: So, going back to the book, you wanted to tell the story of real children, and you found nine children. And how did you select these children, how did they, uh, they find their way into the book?
9: They got in the book because I was on the hunt to find children. What happened was, and many people are aware of this, after the Holocaust, many children survivors did everything possible not to think about what they went through, which is perfectly understandable. The trauma was so great. Basically, they're orphans. They had nothing to think back about, which was a sweet and a pleasant memory. And they worked very hard on blocking out that part of their lives. 30, 40 years later, it became all of a sudden chic, in demand to relate what happened during the war. And as they tried to recount, and I interviewed these people, some having terrific stories, but I could tell, because I know some of the history, that their story was not accurate this was not deliberate, but over those forty years of trying to forget, discrepancies crept into the story, and I could not afford in my book to have something which was inaccurate. And that's because, first of all, you want a book to be accurate, but my great goal is the most popular book about the Holocaust is the story of Anne Frank. And in America, where many states, not many, several states have mandatory Holocaust education, Anne Frank is the book which is read. Mm, yeah. Now Anne's story, with no disrespect to her is not a reflective story. She wasn't in the ghettos, wasn't in the camps, she had a roof over her head, there was a modicum of food, but because it's a story, it's easier to relate to it. But it's not reflective of the Holocaust, not emblematic. So I'm hoping this book, which really tells the story of the children in their own voices, that were in the very bowels of the Holocaust, could replace this with a story which will tell you much more about what those in the the Holocaust underwent.
7: And these, these children, these adults, I mean, it's very beautifully put together. You have photographs, you set them in a real context. These are people from all different parts of the world.
9: Different parts of Europe, of course. The book is very reflective in that regard, that it's different every single corner of the Holocaust Kingdom. It's boys, it's girls, it's religious, not religious, different socioeconomic groups. So it gives a true flavor of every corner.
7: And did you have to do all the interviewing by yourself? Was there a team of people that you were
9: working with? That's why it took 14 years. Uh (laughs) And who did you write the book for? Who was in your mind as you were penning? I'm hoping that this will go for a general audience. Right now, the book is off to a very good start. Has it reached a general audience? Can't really say so. Not long ago, I spoke for a large I'll call it a church group. It wasn't in a church, but it was an evangelical group in South Carolina. It was 900 people. And they sat there for a rather long lecture, and afterwards they were buying the book. They had—they really knew nothing about the Holocaust, so it was an eye-opener for them.
7: Are you going to translate into other languages? Because presumably a lot of the children it won't be their first language English.
9: I hope it will be translated I'm waiting for the initiative to come from others rather than from myself.
7: It's interesting what you say about Anne Frank. People do think of her story and her diary. and I mean, the Holocaust Museum in Amsterdam, that it's all very... It's the Anne Frank Museum, actually. They don't even call it the Holocaust Museum. Correct. It's, it's very much the... I An- mean, that's
9: been hijacked, though. I mean, Palestinians use it, all kinds of groups in the...
7: Palestinians use the Anne Frank story? Yes. To Is demonstrate...
9: That she was oppressed, we're oppressed, and they okay, make so the Okay, so she's one on of...
7: Okay, that's an interesting angle.
9: Another thing that I'm going to find out, whatever you, I don't know if you've got a chance to look at the book yet, but what people really appreciate is I tell the story of the children. It begins wherever they were in the war, when the Holocaust came to them, and it ends upon their liberation. And at the end of the story, I have an epilogue, which tells you what happened to this, to this child, to their family, to their success. And uh, that completes the whole story. That's a unique aspect.
7: It is, because there will be some listeners who think, do we need another Holocaust book? But as you've explained, this is this is a totally different angle. It's very much for the, for the children, and it's from the perspective of the children. And is it connected with your work at Yad Vashem?
9: Not specifically. I'm a tour guide in Yad Vashem, so there's a lot of information which I have here. My methodology in tour guiding is by telling stories, just like Anne Frank, because it sort of blows my mind. There are tour guides that just unspool data, which we're talking about an infinite crime, which are hard to relate to, and they're boring. And you can't relate on a personal level. But if you tell a story, then the banality of the crime makes a much more personal message.
7: That's very interesting. So you can bring that to life through telling an individual
9: personal... Correct. That's what I do on my tour. Yeah. I mean, I know the information, but in every place where I stop and I explain something, it's always with a personal story.
7: You're a natural teacher. It comes through in the storytelling. I suppose that's how children learn from a very, very young age.
9: The truth is, everybody likes a story, you just haven't had to tell it the right way.
7: And you have a story, I believe, also, maybe you could relate to us, in the cover of the book. The cover of the book is children, and there are three or four children, and one of them is in colour. Tell us a bit about that.
9: Okay, listen quickly because it's a very interesting story. We had completed the book. We did not yet have a cover. So we're going through the archives. We came across a picture which I thought was very striking. It's a picture of children on the day that Auschwitz was liberated. And as we're going to press with this cover, I said, in sync with my methodology, which I've already tried to explain to you, always telling an individual story, I wanted to highlight one child. The copyright holder of the picture is the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. So I requested permission. They said, you can have it and get the picture within three weeks. I didn't even have three days. So I have a good connection who's in Baltimore, and he's a powerful individual, and his wife is a lawyer, and she's on the board of the museum. And so she was able to get me permission. But what I neglected to tell her was that I want permission to color the picture sepia. I want to color one child. Just highlight always the individual. I didn't have permission for this. We're going to press, and I requested, could you please give me permission to highlight one child? Three hours before we go to press, we get an, I get an email from the head archivist, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Dear Rabbi Teller, I'm sorry you cannot use the picture with any alterations whatsoever. Our legal department said unequivocally that this boy, which I want to highlight, spoke out recently. He's sensitive, and you cannot use it. And you have plates that are burned. They're on the drums. And in, in three hours, we're going to have... 10,000 covers, so I'm saying it as quickly as possible, but somehow all I had was a clipping with three hours to go, a clipping from a newspaper article, all I knew was his last name might have been Hirsch, I managed to locate his phone number in Switzerland on one phone call, called him up, and nine, nine minutes before we went to press, I got his permission, and we were able to put that, and I took that as an omen for the book.
7: Well, it's a I hope it's a very good omen. The book is excellent, and if anybody wants to get hold of it, how do they do that?
9: I'm sure it can be acquired online. Some pointed out to me today, in England, it's outrageously expensive. If they go to hanochteller.com, H-A-N-O-C-H-Teller.com, it'll be a, a fraction of the price that's offered through, I guess, the local Amazon.
7: Well, good luck with this, and it should be every school's new textbook. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Kate Fulton was talking to Rabbi Hanoch Teller, Now, you're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where our guests join me to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honnickberg and me today are children's author Joe Craig and Jeremy Jacobs, who's known as The Voice. And the subject for this edition is the threat of terrorism and how concerned should we be? Joe, would you like to be the first to answer that question? I think
10: Britain, especially Londoners, have always taken perhaps a different approach to being concerned about terrorism than than other parts of the world. I think we've lived with a certain level of threat of terror for for many decades from different corners. And I like to think we get on with our lives, we're we're watchful, uh, we're sensible, and we don't let it affect our day-to-day lives, I like to think.
0: So you don't think that Londoners are feeling a bit
10: frightened after what they've heard of what's been happening in Brussels? Uh, Well, I think we know there's a very real threat. I don't think that the events in Brussels have increased the threat here. It's just perhaps made us more mindful of it. Uh, I think we're all canny enough to know that there's been a threat of some kind of attack in London for many years now, and that hasn't changed. But I think we also know that London is one of the best prepared cities to face that. And Brussels wasn't really ready, are you saying? I don't know what life is like in Brussels, and I'm not in a position to say that, There are failings of any kind. But certainly having, you know, lived in London my whole life, I feel relatively secure given that I do live in one of the main terrorist targets on the planet.
11: Do you agree with that, Tony? Sorry, do you think we're less of a threat in the UK because of our border controls? No. I don't think our border controls have any
10: impact on the threat of terror. Because we don't have countries just
11: crossing over, do we? Like like in mainland Europe. Well, just popping over Propping over, the, over the borders, as, as we saw with Brussels and Paris, where they were just going across the borders without what looks like any checks. I think the, the threat of terror can come from people who
10: have been born here, brought up here, and gone and come back legitimately with passports. And I don't think stopping people coming onto the island has any impact, really, except perhaps on, our, on the peace of mind of some people who believe that.
0: I have a feeling, Jeremy, that you probably don't agree with that.
12: Well, I do and I don't. The Schengen Agreement, which Tony is referring to, I don't. Has, I agree with Joe. Has no effect or will have no effect uh, on terror threats. If you had proper border controls between Belgium and France, would it have stopped things in Paris last year. Possibly not. Would have stopped Brussels. Certainly not, because they were they were Brussels-born and bred or brought and raised those terrorists. Those terrorists. In the general question, I feel no more at threat today than I did this time last week or last year. The media has gone mad over Brussels. But more people were killed in, in Istanbul a week or two back. And we don't have a, a Twitter campaign going mad about that. With this Schengen agreement that they
11: do, in fact, we're not part of it. We, we've never agreed to it. We've never signed up to it. Yeah. But on mainland Europe, they have. Do you think it was easier, because of that agreement, to move weapons and ammunition and bombs and everything else across the borders? I would say possibly. You don't sound definitely. No, no, not, not really cause, sure cause no, no, because no
12: one really knows. No one knows what's going on particularly. Even, even the security forces don't know, given my own sort of level of general cynicism about <laughs> these things anyway. Who knows what is really behind everything?
0: What you're both saying, really, is that ISIS is the greatest threat that's come to this country since perhaps Hitler or the Cold War.
11: Well, I think it's, I think it's probably the greatest threat regarding terrorism in this country because you've had people that, like Joe said, that have grown up and born and bred in this country, well-educated, not, not just people that haven't been educated, but well-educated people that have gone out there and joined ISIS and then come back yep. and then been a problem for us here. We've let them back in. That's been well, the danger made. is
10: that ISIS seem particularly good, perhaps better than organisations we've been up against in the past. They seem particularly good at preying on
0: disaffected mm-hmm. Vulnerable vulnerable youth. But that's not exactly true either, because I was reading a very interesting article in the Times, which said that the majority, no, I, I must put this right, correctly, not the majority, but a great number of the young Englishmen, young Muslim Englishmen, who had gone over, as it were, and become radical had started off as being doctors or medical students. Educated, mm. yeah. It's like those guys exactly. who
12: who, said heard, who drove that truck into Glasgow Airport a few years ago. They were both doctors. Mm. So, well, well,
11: e- so education that? doesn't really come into yeah, it. Ed- it ed- yeah, education, I agree. Italian. But why is it that so many of them appear to
0: belong to the medical profession? <laughs> <laughs> From the Jewish point of view, how do you feel about it? I mean, they are saying that, for example, the Jews in Belgium who are all joining together with the rest of the community in Belgium, are all fighting together against this and all feel the same way. But in France, Hmm. the French are going like mad to
11: Israel and America and Britain. I think we should stand together and stand up against these people. I think in France it's always been perhaps more anti-Jewish than Belgium has anyway. Except when the Nazis came in, of course, mm-hmm. then, it, then it turned. But I think in real sort of quiet times, I think the Belgians are much more tolerant.
10: I, think, than the oh, French. I was going to say the same thing. I think we've touched on this before on this programme as well, that France has a a more checkered history, shall we say, when mm. dealing with certain ethnic minorities, certainly the Jews. Mm. And I think that the French or Belgian respective responses says more about France and Belgium than it does about the nature of the terrorist attacks or the nature of Islam or the relationship with Islam that the country has.
0: There's also another very important fact that one has to bear in mind is that the majority of people belonging to the Islamic religion in Europe are good people. They're
11: not Hmm. people who want to belong to ISIS
0: or anything like that. No, that's
11: right. Most people in any religion, I think, are good people. Isn't, isn't it the, the smallest number make the most noise? Yeah. It <laughs> should be uh, us, really. Shouldn't it we? should be, really. But, but, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're deep down inside, we're not terrorist type of people. Jewish people aren't, are they? I hope not, no. I mean, you've yeah, got the yeah. few. And, you, and, and at the beginning, when Israel was created, you had the gangs, didn't you? You had the Stern Gang and the, the Haganah and all those sort of things, who basically were fighters were they terrorists i don't they know they were about. called terrorists they at the were time. at the time i suppose they were they were fighting the british weren't they yes you know yes so in, in one way they are terrorists and they
0: blew up the, the king David, David Hotel, Hotel. Mm. Mm. in jerusalem so i mean that they were exactly the same yeah
11: but they didn't just go and kill people for the sake of killing no, no. Mm.
12: which is they were, fighting.
11: Ha- they were actually fighting the british army weren't they they weren't fighting civilians Whereas in Belgium, they're there, and France, and everywhere else, they're fighting the civilians. They're yeah. jumping up
12: on them. Right. I mean, I touched on this thing in, in, in Turkey. There's been two or three terrorist atrocities in, in Turkey. We never hear about those. Is it because you know, Brussels and Paris are nearer, or is it because, or is it because of the number of Western journalists in Turkey mm-hmm. and there, elsewhere, there an and Iraq. In, in Iraq, and there may be something to do with the fact that there are fewer Western journalists in these countries. And perhaps that's the only reason. I don't know. No, but I think
0: it's because most people living in Europe see that this is happening in Europe now and are worried about Europe. It's as simple as that. And Turkey is a
11: long way away. Yeah, we're demographically, we're closer, aren't
0: we? I think it's more than that, though. I think, unfortunately,
10: and I say this with regret, that I think we are, as a a Western, largely white population, desensitised to seeing people with darker skin in that sort of... (laughs) catastrophic terrorist event. We've been been desensitised to it over many years of that being the way that they're painted in media reports. I remember growing up watching reports from from Lebanon and Beirut, Mm. not realising that just 10 or 15 years earlier, Beirut was a beautiful, flourishing city for many, many centuries before that. Mm -hmm. In my head as a kid, Beirut equaled rubble and terrorism. And I think that's become the sort of subconscious response that we have when we see people with darker skin in the Middle East or or wherever they are. Caught in terrorist atrocities. This is a natural Caucasian. I, well, um, I, don't thought, natural. I don't think it's natural. I don't think it's a natural thought. I think, well, I think it's a conditioned one. We, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so it's be, a it conditioned over time. And, yeah. And, yeah. Exactly. And conditioned
12: by the media. None, none
10: yeah. of us would want to respond that way rationally, and we we want to give the same mm. uh, empathetic response to uh, one of these atrocities that happens yeah. further away. No, I
11: guess in our everyday lives, we mix with different people and we yeah. get on well with different people. Yeah.
12: We don't but live out of their compare the
10: hypothetical. Please God, this won't won't happen. But if something were to happen in Sydney or. Melbourne it's as far away as you can get mm. but I think the response You'd would
12: be, be more
0: empathetic. would be outrage and
12: as well, there was huge. Something last year wasn't there a, mm. couple of, a couple of years ago but yeah. yeah
0: I hate to say this but it does look this way things are beginning mm. to get worse in Europe in Western Europe all the time do they not I mean it's only a few months since there was the trouble in Paris mm-hmm. and now it's in Brussels and where's next
11: and where's next mm.
12: it could be anywhere yeah well, we had Madrid a few years ago, didn't yeah. we? And, uh, yeah, that
11: was terrible. Well, and London, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah I think it, there have it? been
10: plots that have been foiled as well. That doesn't make the situation better. But okay. in saying where's next, it's not so, necessarily so just a tick list no, of capital
12: cities. But but what what is the answer here? <laughs> if you try and anglicise certain communities in this country, would that help? I mean, you know... the, the, the There are many people living in Woolooten and Bradford and Accrington and other places that don't feel part of this country.
0: But do you see that the fact that there might well be, I don't want to sound over dramatic, but there could well be, after what's been happening recently, there could be a huge war, because apparently ISIS is terribly rich from selling oil and things like that. But there could be a world war. Could be, yeah. Out
11: of all this. Could be. It'll be a different world war, of course. I've said this once before, they have 21st century weaponry, but middle-aged ideologies. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of world war. More dangerous, I think. In what sense? Well, because you're not fighting country against country. We don't know where these people are, for a start. There's no set country. It's not like Germany invaded Poland and and then Britain got involved and went through. You're not fighting particularly an, an, an army as such because they're all well, over the place, aren't they? Well,
0: in a sense, you are. What I'm saying is that if this goes on, these sort of terrorist acts, ISIS making more and more money and getting more and more success with their attacks, they can eventually,
11: as an army, if you like, invade different parts of Europe. But you, you don't
12: know where they're going to be invading from. That's the problem. Well, And, how, and how, many, how many people have they got under arms anyway? I don't think it's that like no, much no. particularly, but I mean, I, I take your point. But I think before we get into realms of fantasy here, <laughs> what can we do on a, on a practical day by day level?
0: Well, that's the question I'm really asking.
12: Well, how I, do you I, stop I, this from getting bigger be... and bigger and well, bigger? Well, Syria serious, serious part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps you need to have a sad remaining there because at least you know what you're dealing with. The last thing you want is for that government to be toppled over by these people.
11: So as a Western society, we made the mistake all the way along with uh, agreeing with the sides that wanted to get out Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and all that. Mm. We sided with the wrong people. We should have been fighting to keep them in. Sure. Because actually we did have control over them. Exactly. Yeah. Saddam Hussein was the biggest mistake of all. And perhaps that's when it all really began to happen. Mm, the Arab, this so-called Arab Spring started to happen, and from that we, it's just gone on from and there. And the Arab Spring hasn't worked at all, no, has it? No, it never would. It was never
12: going you to See, work. What, see what, what is the underlying issue here? The real underlying issue? Is it religion? Is it poverty? Land? I, is it, I suspect there's perhaps those two. If people have jobs and people are, are fed and watered, they're less likely to fight. I just get the feeling that we've raped and pillaged these, these places, these countries over the years. Mm. Uh, economically, I don't mean militarily. Economically, and I think that is the problem. It might be the problem of the corporations, who knows? And now, now um, we're seeing the backside of that.
11: Yeah. Mm. Well, indeed. that's a rather
0: depressing end to this discussion, but thank you all very much indeed. <laughs> uh, that's all the Jewish views we have time for. My thanks to our guests, Joe Craig, Jeremy Jacobs, and Tony Honigberg, and please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue.
13: Every year we repeat the wonderful story of Purim, and every year we find something else hidden in it. Because indeed, the main theme in the Megillah is the secret, the hidden. It is a great contradiction that we call this book Megillat Esther, when Megillah comes from the Hebrew root of revealed, and Esther from the Hebrew root for hidden. The main character of the story is Adasa, or by her more familiar Persian name, Esther. We can see that she's a quiet, reserved, humble girl. She doesn't make a lot of noise. Whatever Mordecai tells her to do, she does. Esther develops, however, as the story of the Megillah advances. We see at the peak of the story how she stands in front of King Kachashverosh and Heyman, the senior minister, and she manipulates them in order to achieve her objective, to save the Jews from extermination. What happened? How did she turn into an assertive woman like that? I believe that if we look deep into the story, we will find the turning point. After the Edict of Haman in name of the king, Mordechai and the Jews of Shushan are in mourning and are trying to find a way to save themselves. Mordechai speaks to Esther and asks her to go and speak to the king. Esther refuses, as she was not allowed to approach the king without being summoned, under penalty of death. Then Mordechai said to her, something that will turn her into the hero of our story, one that even today, after thousands of years, is remembered. Mordecai said, Esther, my child, if you keep quiet now and you don't do anything, then salvation will come from a different place, because if it's God's will to save us, then it will happen. But this is your opportunity to stand and perform the task that you were born to do, and if you don't, you don't do it, then your existence was devoid of meaning. Who knows? Maybe this is the reason why you became a queen, in order to be in the right place to leave your mark in history. It is your destiny. You are here to save the day, to be the agent of God, the same one that we don't see openly in the Megillah, because he is hidden, working through you, Esther. And Esther reacted. Good, she said. Go and gather the Jews and proclaim a fast for me. I am doing this, and indeed she did. It was her moment to shine and be a star in the history of the Jewish people. How wonderful! Mordechai taught Esther an important idea in Judaism: everyone has a role in the world, a unique task that no other can do for us. Every experience in life is, at the end, part of a set of tools that we receive from God to perform our mission. When we live with the awareness that our challenges in life might be part of this mission to provide us with experience or maturity to, to succeed. We will be able to find the strength and wisdom to deal with them and continue forward. We are agents of God in the world, even if it's hidden, even if we are not aware. May we be worthy of this wonderful challenge, and, like Esther, may we be a tool to improve the world.
0: That was Rabbi Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Philippe Markovitch, Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, and Rabbi Hanoch Teller. And to our schmooze guests, Joe Craig, Jeremy Jacobs, and Tony Honigberg. And of course, to you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always Download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us on iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Clive Roslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.